This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On this episode, a conversation with Congressman David Cicilline. And certainly plenty to discuss with the congressman on his second appearance on the pod. He made his first B-Town appearance back in September 2018. Wow, year one. And here we are now, two and a half years into the project. Couldn't have done it without you, the listeners, that's for sure. And by the way, I have some exciting announcements to roll out over the next couple of weeks. Looking forward to doing that. And on Friday... I sort of made reference to the fact that I have launched a Patreon for Bartholomew Town. If you're interested in supporting the pod with perhaps a $3 donation or even a $10 donation per month, you can visit patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town. If you take a look at the website, you'll see that I have some exclusive content for B-Town insiders, and your support will go directly to moving this project along helping to fund the journalism, the opinion, and the entertainment that the Bartholomew Town podcast has become known for. That's patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town if you want to make a contribution. All right, without further ado, let's get right to it. Our conversation, second time around here, and look, what is now an historic moment in world history, no doubt about it. We are living it. David Cicilline, United States Congressman from Rhode Island. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning. How are you feeling today? I'm good, and you? Excellent, thank you. Pleasure to see you again. Nice to see you again. All right. Um, well, first of all, thanks so much for hopping on here. And, you know, 2020, who would have expected any of what we're, you know, it's kind of a tired phrase now, but who would have expected where we are, obviously. And I guess let's get right into it with sort of your take on, first of all, COVID-19, what that sort of revealed about United States society at large, and then also obviously moving into what we've seen in these last weeks here around the country, and then kind of zero in on on how that impacts Rhode Island. So first of all, I guess sort of your just take on what's going on in the in the country over the last few months. Well, I mean, I think there's no question that COVID-19, which is obviously a very serious public health pandemic, a global health pandemic, has presented real challenges to our country that has been exacerbated by a really um, delayed and uh, incompetent leadership from this administration in terms of responding quickly and decisively uh, to the pandemic, but we are where we are. Um, But I think what it has revealed and sort of laid before the American people and frankly the world to see is it really revealed what we already knew, this gross income inequality, um, really grotesque health income disparities, uh, housing inequalities, and you see some of the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. It's been devastating, far in excess of the percentage of population those communities represent in this country. And so we have to answer for that. And so while I think we have a responsibility to get through this pandemic and be doing all the things we're doing to protect families and protect workers and support our healthcare system, uh, this has to be a call to action that that to that to really address in a very fundamental way the staggering inequality, institutional racism in this country, the lack of uh, access to affordable housing and uh, good paying jobs. So uh, I think it's it was a wake up call. I think now we're seeing, of course, on t- layered on top of that was the brutal murder of George Floyd. And I think it was just too much for people to take like, all of the inequality, all the unfairness that that is so contrary to what we think of as America. 
that was layered on uh, to the entire nation watching a video as uh, the life was 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 taken from George Floyd as he literally had the last breath of his life begging for his mom and saying, I can't breathe. And people just, I think, rightly said, enough is enough. And now we're seeing all across America peaceful protests where people are demanding that this change. And I think this time is different. I think that actually it's going to be impossible for those of us who have the privilege of serving in elective office to ignore the demands of the American people. And actually tomorrow will will pass, or Thursday we will pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act on the House floor. What's the, what are the details of that act? So the details of that act are it, uh, it's the most comprehensive police reform bill ever considered by Congress, at least in our lifetimes. It uh, bans chokeholds. It creates a national uh, police misconduct registry so officers can't go from one department to another. It uh, puts in place uh, initiatives to end racial profiling. It um, makes sure that officers who engage in misconduct are fully held accountable. It provides incentives for police departments to become accredited. It invests and requires training on de-escalation and proper use of force. Uh, And it does a number of other things. But it really is, I think, the beginning of a uh, reform of our police departments. And, you know, we have an example right here in the city of Providence. When I took the Providence Police Department over as mayor, it was a department that was under a patterns and practice investigation by the Department of Justice for, you know, serious civil rights violations. Crime was seriously on the increase, and the police and the community were really at war with one another. And I saw with the right leadership in the police department, with a community willing to work together, with police officers willing to embrace a new way of doing policing, we, you know, recreated the police department to a neighborhood-based community policing model, produced the lowest crime rate in 40 years. Police officers became members of housing boards and the YMCA board, and they became fully part of the community. And uh, so I know this work uh, can be done, and I know the impact it has on people's lives when it's done well. And I think in a lot of ways, our police departments here in Rhode Island could be a lesson to others around the country about how to build police community relationships. Kind of moving into Rhode Island and thinking about the COVID crisis, certainly in uh, your district and you know, on a statewide basis, it was certainly an issue, but we started to really understand, I don't know when exactly it was, sometime at the beginning of April, that specific zip codes, specific commonalities of, frankly, social injustice and inequity were presenting more challenges when it came to COVID-19. Some of those are obviously in the housing and, and access to education, access to medicine, and some of them are just you can go back 400 years or more and, and trace the roots of where that divide has come from. Looking at Rhode Island, looking at your congressional district, what would you like to see change, I guess, immediately to sort of move the needle where that inequity can be at least reduced right now and eventually made complete history? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that we're doing, we did in, in the HEROES Act, you know, Part of the challenge here is that, you know, communities of color have disproportionately been impacted in part because they have greater challenges in accessing health care, greater challenges in accessing jobs that provide health coverage. When they do have health care, they may not be in a position to follow through with prescriptions or other things that are necessary to maintain health. 
Uh, very often uh, in poor communities, people are living in more confined quarters, obviously, families congregating in very small spaces. All those conditions which a highly contagious virus uh, can take full advantage of. So those are hard things to fix immediately, but we need to recognize that housing remains a real issue in our state for many, many families. We need to recognize, although we have uh, virtually universal coverage in Rhode Island, there are still people in Rhode Island who don't have access to healthcare. We need to make sure everyone does. We need to make certain that people have access to current and good information from public health officials, how to protect themselves and their families. And I think we have to be sure that everyone's, you know, reinforcing the governor and the Department of Health guidelines. You know, there's a sense out there of everyone getting a little stir crazy, wanting this thing to be over. Of course we want it to be over, but the best way for it to be over is to follow the advice of the public health professionals. But as I said at the very beginning, you know, we have a lot of work to do to be sure that we're creating good paying jobs that are available to everyone, uh, to be sure that what has existed in this country for generations in terms of racism, that we confront it head on and acknowledge it's there and acknowledge that on, not only in the police context do Black Lives Matter, but in all contexts and that every life and every person is valued and we need to be sure that we recognize that the systemic racism that has existed in this country for a very long time is not gonna go away on its own. We have to do things like invest in housing in particularly affected communities, invest in additional educational resources in those communities, invest in job training and other job creating opportunities in those communities. And um, I think you're gonna see a lot of things come out of Congress that are gonna incentivize local communities to do just that. One thing that sort of revealed itself to me anyway, and I think a lot of Rhode Islanders, is that in some ways there are, even unintentionally, elements of inequity baked into the system. For example, testing and a lack of translation in many of the languages that are spoken by folks who are amongst the, the or those who live in, in the areas that were the most impacted for months and months and months. So that communication element kind of understanding new ways to reach people, I guess, is something that here in Rhode Island we could do better. And I think that the administration has certainly done a better job um, in recent times of doing that. But I think there was a just a big wake-up call to, wow, we really have to think way outside of the box that we've been in for at least, I think, for certainly my life, I would assume yours. And, and you know, again, generationally, we really have to be more inclusive. And it's not just a buzzword. It's really a, a, a way to attack problems that we have to rethink how we're doing it. Yeah. You know, we had a, a speaker the other day uh, speak to our caucus, Professor San Angelo. She wrote uh, a book called White Fragility. And she was, it was really a very um, kind of important conversation. She was basically saying, you know, everyone on this call, particularly the kind of Democrats around this call who are white, you know, you probably think of yourselves as progressives and, or liberals and you think, you know, I'm not a racist and I, I'm, you know, I have always welcomed and included African-American people in my life. And she went through kind of all the things we all think about and say that prove that we're not racist. And she said, but the reality is you're a white person who grew up in a society where from your birth, you were more valued than a black person. That's a fact. And you receive certain privileges because of that, whether you are personally harboring racist views or not, your life experiences are that such that you benefited from a racist system and a racist society. And sort of understanding that reality and then understanding that our responsibility to eradicate that is even more uh, important because 
we've benefited from this system. And I thought it was a really important point. And the thing that gives me hope is, you know, I've participated in a lot of the, the protests, uh, the peaceful protests in Rhode Island. And, you know, the young people that are present, and obviously it's people of every background, every ethnic group, every age. And it's just a reminder that, A, that protest is a deeply American tradition, but also what people are protesting for, demanding equality and justice for everyone and people to be free from racism and discrimination. Like, this is the most American idea in the world. And it's just so great to see sort of the renewal of this demand for us to live up to those values. And it, it gives me a lot of hope about the future when you see how many young people are leading the effort at these protests. Unquestionably, a Generation Z, even more so, far more so, I believe, than, than me as a millennial um, or, or any other generation potentially that's, that's still living today. You know, you just get the sense that a lot of the institutions, a lot of the things that were sort of definites for many of us, they're willing to question and in some cases ignore, just constantly challenge. And it's not coming from this place of, um, you know, random rebellion. It's coming from a, hey, look, we're not going to allow for the world to continue down certain tracks and we're, we're going to pull the plug right now. No matter what that says about, you know, you can call us unpatriotic or you can call us rioters or whatever other terms you want to throw out there. We're going to ignore those, plow ahead and get this done right now, or at least do everything we can to get the message out about what needs to change. Right. And what could be more patriotic than fighting and demanding that America live up to its truest values? I mean, that's the most patriotic thing you can do. Let's uh, let's shift um, briefly on police reform and what that might look like. I mean, we hear everything from in the defund the police conversation to completely remove the police to readjust and reappropriate. And then there are other folks who, uh, you know, they push back on that notion at all. And they, you know, they have this sort of law and order approach to things. Where do you stand on that? And sort of what's your relationship to, you'd mentioned you had, obviously you were mayor, the Community Safety Act and, and changes in Providence. There are now less officers on the street in Providence and in some cases, in many cases, that's reduced crime. So how do you sort of want to see policing moving forward? Well, I mean, I think the thing you have to do is you have to recognize that we all want communities to be safe and we want communities to be places where families and children can thrive and feel safe uh, in all that they do. And we want uh, people who live in our communities to be um, you know, have confidence and trust in those that serve in all positions of trust, including police departments. And so I think, you know, what you have to do is create conditions in which the community and police work in partnership uh, to improve the lives of the people that, the, that are they serve. And I give you an example. Um, one of the things we learned when I was mayor was that when there was a response to a call for assistance from the police for domestic violence, it very often involved children that were present. And so think of the trauma. The police show up, they you know, take the, typically the man in these instances into custody, whether it's the dad or the boyfriend or the father figure at home. And you know, the mother is, the wife is, or spouse, a partner is distressed, maybe physically hurt. The children are crying and the whole thing is so traumatizing. And the police go there and they arrest the guy and they just sort of do their job. Um, but we realized that we needed to figure out how we could support that family in that instance. And so the Providence Police Department partnered with Family Services of Rhode Island to have a trained family counselor, social worker, person who knows about violence and trauma for children, ride with the police in the police car to the house. 
So when they arrive, they deal with the, you know, the person they have to take into custody. They're counseling the mother and the children instantaneously at the same time, significantly reducing the trauma and the experience and then getting them into the kind of program they might need to get through this long term. That's an example where there's a partnership. Maybe there are some resources that have to go to support that family resource component. But that's a good thing. It's good for the police who say, like, I'm not a social worker. I don't have the skills, nor did I train to be a police officer to do that kind of work, but really benefited from the presence of that partner. So I think there's a lot of examples like that where we have to be smart about the way police and community work together. Um, but, you know, I think that, that when people talk about defunding the police, at least in general, they're not talking about eliminating police departments or abolishing police altogether and not having a police department. I certainly don't support that. But I do think people are talking about let's be smart about the way we think about investing in mental health services and housing services and counseling services um, so that, you know, we're not asking police officers to do things that's just unfair to ask them to do and they're not trained to do. And when I was mayor, I would hear from the police all the time, I'm not a social worker, I can't do all this. And they're right. And so you have to figure out new ways to provide the services that people need. But um, in the end, my chief used to always say, and I think this is absolutely true, the most powerful weapon I have to reduce crime in this city is not some gun, is not some military-grade weapon. It's the trust and confidence of the people we serve. And it's really true. And you can't have trust and confidence if you don't respect each other and you don't interact in a respectful way. So I think that has to be the objective. To that end, do you? there's been some people who have, have called for candidates, elected officials, to not accept um, contributions from police organizations. Do you feel that that's an appropriate direction to go? I know you have, over the course of your career, have accepted contributions. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Look, I think everyone can make that decision. I think the reality is what really matters to folks is that we do things that will actually improve policing in this country, that will help end racial discrimination, that will ban chokeholds, that will hold bad offers accountable. I think that's a lot more meaningful, frankly, than, uh, you know, some union contribution. But obviously, people will do it if they think that's effective. Uh, last couple of minutes here. Number one, President Trump held a rally in Tulsa. It was pretty much a flop. It looked like going back to that Gen Z comment that some some of the youth were able to, through TikTok and through other communication platforms, sort of thwart or, or fool the, the organizers into thinking many more tickets had been sold than there were. Do you get the sense right now, you've been a frontline critic of the president for the duration of his term. Do you get the sense that things are turning in a sour direction for the Trump campaign? And how can, especially really independent thinking voters or those who maybe voted for a President Trump in the last go around, who are, how can those folks move to a point where they move away from the president? Uh, or do you think that that's something that's, is that a reasonable thing to expect right now that we're, that, you know, people who are in the Trump camp, those who are in the, the Biden camp, so to speak, you know, is there going to be more movement over the course of the next few months? Well, I mean, I think, look, there's no question the president has had a core base of support that I think has demonstrated that it will not leave him no matter what. Uh, fortunately, it's not big enough for him to win a reelection. But I think, you know, where the fight is, is for the independents who may have voted for President Trump because they uh, believe that he was going to be different and, you know, focus on fighting for working people in this country and, and, and fight for the little guy. And I think they've seen over the last three and a half years, that's just a big fat lie that President Trump has devoted most of his energy to help 
you know, his friends and people of tremendous wealth and the well-connected, not working people. He fought hard to give a $2 trillion tax cut where 83% of that tax cut went to the richest people in this country. He's fought against virtually every effort to help working families. He's standing in the way right now of a fifth COVID response to get more money back in the pockets of American families and helping states and local governments support the heroes on the front lines. He's engaged in what I would consider the most kind of lawless president we've ever had, undermining the rule of law, using the military against citizens of this country as they peacefully protest, an astonishingly incompetent response to COVID-19. I mean, the list goes on and on, undermining American leadership in the world, you know, withdrawing from every international agreement that we've been a part of just about, uh, rolling back serious environmental protections, uh, rolling back protections for LGBTQ Americans. I mean, the list goes on and on, on demonizing immigrants, allowing children to be put in cages. So I just think there are so many examples of where the president has taken uh, actions which are contrary to American values, have undermined the rule of law, diminished our standing in the world. And I think Joe Biden's right. This is this election is about the soul of our country, about what we're going to leave to our children and grandchildren in terms of a country. And as uh, John Bolton, who I hesitate to quote, said the other day, we might survive four years of this president and we can't survive a second term. He's exactly right. All right. My last question, the Equality Act, which you're uh, I believe you're you're on that bill. Um, it's my bill. It's your bill. Okay, you put in. So that's there it is. Let's talk about that. It's been there's been some landmark rulings, frankly, Supreme Court rulings here this month, but that's an area that needs to be, again, sort of put right at the right front and center. There are there are inequities baked into the cake in the system and we need to undo those immediately. We'll yeah, I mean, the Equality Act is a comprehensive civil rights bill that prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity in housing, employment, public accommodations, jury service, credit, education, and federal funding. So in all of our existing civil rights laws, it adds the categories of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's the only way to achieve full equality and prohibit discrimination as a matter of federal law. Um, it passed in the House with the vote of every single Democrat and eight Republicans or 12 Republicans. Um, but it's been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk along with 400, more than 400 other pieces of legislation that we've passed. The Supreme Court in a very powerful decision said that discrimination that is forbidden in the context of employment um, in, for sex discrimination, which is prohibited under federal law, includes sexual orientation or gender identity, which is a huge decision of the court. Six to three, very powerful decision, makes it very clear that you cannot fire someone from their job because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. That has tremendous implications. It's great. It's a one big step forward. But we have all the other areas which remain areas where there's significant discrimination, which is why we need the Equality Act so we can resolve this once and all as a matter of law. Congressman David Cicilline, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for uh Hopping on, good. It's been like two years since I know, I thank you for back on. Of course, stay safe. All right, stay safe as well. Take care. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. There's over 217 episodes of the Bartholomew Town Podcast, which the Boston Globe called the gold standard of Rhode Island podcast. It's waiting for you wherever you listen to pods, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at ripodcast.com. And hey, while you're there, a great way that you can support the pod is to leave a rating and review.